Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We've been in a series, as I mentioned earlier, on justice. More particularly, that side of justice, that side of the Hebrew word mishpat, that says that the role of the people of God is to ensure that the vulnerable, that the disenfranchised, that the marginalized are given their due. That no one in society is left behind. That's the sense of what it means, at least the Hebrew term, justice. And we've been talking a lot about what that means, understandably from the Hebrew prophets, because they're the ones who, who bring up this idea, they, they describe it so eloquently, they apply it so accurately to the communities that they were speaking to. But, but here's what I want to do this morning. I want to draw a very hard, very clear, undeniable line between the prophets and Jesus. And the reason I want to do that is quite simple. Those prophets, though they have spoken truth, oftentimes did it in the context of a covenant that you and I do not follow anymore. Those prophets that have been teaching us some really good lessons about what it means to advocate for the vulnerable, what it means to stand up for the disenfranchised, are some of the same prophets that would hand down laws from everything about temples that were to be built to certain kinds of dietary restrictions that were to be observed and and in some context even certain kinds of people that were to be avoided all of that was confined to a covenant that God struck with Moses as God's people were awaiting a messiah and you and I as followers of Jesus recognize and believe that that messiah has already come that in his coming he has fulfilled the law of Moses in every respect, which means that that law is not just fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 8 says it's obsolete. There's things we don't have to do anymore, like like avoid bacon. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? We don't have to avoid bacon anymore. But there's so many other things that we don't have to do. It's not that those words are not inspired. It is that they have been fulfilled and they're obsolete. The same way that if you've got milk in your refrigerator right now and it's past the pull date, it's not evil, it's not wrong, it's just out of date, isn't it? You don't want to be drinking that stuff. And so many parts of the Mosaic Covenant, when we look at it, we recognize it as the Word of God. We also recognize it as covenantally bound to an agreement with Moses, all of which was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so we need, if we're going to establish a theological basis for justice, to draw the line from the heart of the prophetic message to the message of Jesus, and we need to do it for this reason. I don't want anybody in here walking out using the excuse that I don't have to do any of that stuff Pastor Joel was talking about because it's all in the Old Testament. Amen? It's not that simple either, is it? And so we want to draw some lines today. And one of the things we're going to see in these two parables that we're going to read in Luke chapter 14, Jesus walks willingly and intentionally into the religious structure of the first century, and he intentionally flips the whole thing upside down. And he does it by standing in the tradition of the very prophets that you and I have been looking at. Let me set the context for you by looking again at verse 1. Scripture says, One Sabbath he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him 
carefully. So you get the scene here? We're, we're keeping our eyes on you. We're waiting for you to trip up so we can call you on it. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to those, to those things. Now, here's the thing. The backdrop of all of this is there's already some palpable tension that's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And it reaches a bit of a climax here and a boiling point, if you will. This is happening at the house of a Pharisee. Uh, Luke doesn't name that individual for us, so we don't know, as readers of the New Testament, who this man was. But I can guarantee you this, everybody in that town knew who this man was. This was a high-level religious official, and then there's Jesus coming into the house, almost as a guest of honor, although it's already been stated that the reason they brought him there was not to honor him, but to trap him. And one of the pawns, if you will, that they're using to trap him is a man with something called dropsy. Now, there's a, a more modern medical term that we now use to describe dropsy. We call it edema. It's a swelling of the joints. And I'm not talking about swelling like you just ran a half marathon, you can't get your wedding ring off. I'm talking about swelling to the point that you can't move your joints anymore, not just including the little ones, but the big ones as well. And in most extreme cases, dropsy or edema can immobilize you to the point that you really can't function in society any longer without the help of others. And so essentially you have a crippled man, uh, likely would have been in a wheelchair in the 21st century, and here he is in this room, and it's immediately the, the intent of the religious leaders becomes clear to us. All of this has been staged. All of it has been staged. And the, these leaders are using a disabled man as a prop for their trick. I want you to think about that for a minute, brothers and sisters, because that is exactly what empty religion does. It takes the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, those that society says do not matter, and it makes them a prop, and it makes them something that gets used for some larger agenda. That's what it does. I remember in 2006, uh, Amy and I were on the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina had hit just a little less than a year earlier, and we were part of thousands of volunteers who descended on, on Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana's Gulf Coast in order to try to clean up the mess and, and help those people rebuild their lives. And we had a team of about 300 volunteers from the churches that we worked with, and we were set up in three separate locations along Mississippi's Gulf Coast, in Biloxi and Pascagoula, and another one in Gulfport. And in the midst of all that, we learned, along with some of the other volunteers that we were working with, that there were some people in a particular location that were going without water. They didn't have any water. And the reason, furthermore, that they didn't have water wasn't because there wasn't water available, it was because the cans of water that had been donated, I'm talking about pallets of them that would have quenched the thirst of tens of thousands of people, but the cans looked like this because they'd been donated by the Anheuser-Busch Company. Now, the denomination that had, con had taken possession of these pallets of water, they were concerned because this, this was a particular religious group that didn't believe people should drink alcohol for any reason. That's okay, you can hold that conviction here. It's not a church conviction at Covenant, but if that's the way you feel, you certainly are, should be honored by that. There should be stronger brothers that should honor those, those convictions of our brothers and sisters who feel that way. But that's not what was happening here. These were individuals who were more concerned about the appearance 
of working with a beer company than they were actually quenching the thirst of people who just lost their homes. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because that's what empty religion does. Empty religion cares how it looks. Followers of Jesus care how it is. We care what it's going to take to get people from where they are to where they need to be. That's what they do. And so Jesus walks into a similar situation. You've got religious leaders that he knows are testing him. There's a man in a wheelchair that he knows they're using as a prop. They're not trying to do anything to help him. In fact, the only reason he's there is to try to get Jesus entrapped. And so what does Jesus do? He calls out in the elephant, he calls the elephant in the room out. Just straight out. I can imagine him almost walking over to that man, looking back at the religious leaders and, and with a bit of snark in his tone saying, is it unlawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he just turns around and does it. This, by the way, is not the first time Jesus has a controversy with the religious leaders on the Sabbath. I'll tell you, religious leaders, empty religion, it does this. It, it treats Scripture like it's some kind of rule book with subsections. It, it's like having a Bible study with the Internal Revenue Service. All right? Everybody's looking for a loophole. Everybody's looking. You want to trap everybody else but free yourself. That's what empty religion does. Jesus has had this conversation before. In Matthew chapter 12, he's walking through a wheat field with his disciples. It happens to be on the sixth day of the week, and they're hungry, and so they're pulling the heads off of the grain and eating them. And that, of course, not according to the law of Moses even, but according to the Talmud, which was the commentary that the religious leaders had written on the, the, the law of Moses. That was a supposedly work. That was a violation of the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders come to Jesus. Now, Jesus could have just said, they're hungry. You want them to starve to death? They're hungry. He doesn't do that. He goes even further than that. When they say, why do you let your disciples eat grain on the Sabbath day? He replies by saying, because the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. I'm the fulfillment of it. There's a new day coming, boys. Those days are gone. I am bringing them to an end. And by the way, I created this day. I can do whatever I want to with it. And so again, it's not the first time that he has encountered this particular debate with them. But what he's teaching them, or at least trying to teach them, and, and subsequently what he's trying to teach you and me, is that this is a tension. It's backdropped by all manner of that tension. And brothers and sisters, this is not just an innocent disagreement over how to interpret Scripture. Jesus makes it clear, this is a tension between rival kingdoms. And you're going to have to pick one. You're either going to pick him and his heart and his compassion for those less fortunate, or you're going to pick empty religion. But you can't, you can't have both of them. You're going to have to pick one. One of the things we learn about the kingdom of God, if you read uh, everywhere that it's described, particularly in the New Testament, is that it's upside down. The kingdom of God doesn't come the way you think. It doesn't advance in the way you think. And even in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see this in Isaiah 52. You see this triumphant declaration of victory that culminates with that, that statement, your God reigns, the kingdom is coming. Then the very next chapter in Isaiah 53, what we're told is that kingdom doesn't come the way you think. It doesn't come through the acquisition of power. It doesn't come through the acquisition of weapons. It comes through one who will come and suffer for the sins of others. And it's the value of that kingdom that drives everything that Jesus says here. And so if we want to be people of justice, 
We want to share the heart of God. We must embody the characteristics described for us in these parables. And there's three of them. Starting with this one. Jesus says you must be characterized by humility. Look at verses 7 to 9. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When they noticed... How they, how, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come up and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Here's the bottom line of this, this principle that Jesus is trying to teach. God's plan for his people, all of us, is humility. And if we do not accept humility, the result will be humiliation. You either are going to voluntarily humble yourself before the Lordship of Jesus and have the kind of posture necessary to be a person of justice, or God will humiliate you. He's not going to share his glory with you. So you either humble yourself or you will be humbled. And, and the, the illustration example he uses, I think, is quite funny because you can imagine, can't you, going to a wedding? And being surrounded by all these people. I mean, imagine going into a reception hall and the place is just packed. I don't like that in particular. I mean, I love all of you and, and I love being out in the foyer and greeting you guys and being surrounded by you. I love that, but, but there's a side of that that also wears me out a little bit. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It's not a lack of love for people. It's just sometimes you feel maybe a little claustrophobic. This is probably why I hate Disney. All right? I just, I don't, oh, there's just too many people down here. Right? I got to have a little bit of space. I'm, I'm very American in that way. I've got to have my space. Right? Got to have some space. And so uh, if you walk into a place that's really crowded and you're looking around and you don't see any seats at this wedding reception, but then all of a sudden you look and up at the front of the room, you see several seats. And nobody's taken them yet. In fact, it looks like they're on a bit of a raised platform and they face everybody else. And there's, there's actually nicer flowers on those tables than there are all the other tables between you and, and the front of this room. And you think to yourself, you know what? There you go. Nobody else has taken them. I guess I'm just going to. So you very presumptuously walk up to the front of the room. You step up on that platform and you plop your rear end down in one of those seats. What's going to happen? What have you just done? You've just done a really bad thing, haven't you? You've just done something that's in really bad taste. And eventually, somebody, a member of the family, a member of the staff, they're going to come and tap you on the shoulder very politely but very clearly. They're going to say, uh, that's grandma's seat. And the reason the seats are empty is because the wedding party's taking pictures right now and grandma's with them, but it's not going to be long before she comes through that door in her walker. And so you need to get up because you're in grandma's seat. What happens now? Now you've got to get up out of that seat that you presumptuously sought for yourself, and you've got to take what is called a walk of shame, don't you? Everybody's looking, right? I got to, man, I shouldn't have you know, I claimed something that really wasn't mine, and now I got to. But the thing is, it doesn't stop there, does it? Because a few minutes later, when you're back in the peanut gallery with everybody else, what's the peanut gallery doing? They're turning their heads back and looking at you. They're rolling their eyes. They're talking about how they can't believe that guy was so presumptuous as to go up there. Then you notice, man, there's a lot of cell phones in this room. Video cameras, professional photographers. And then it's when it hits you. You know what? Every single anniversary celebration that's going to ensue for the duration of this marriage will involve this young couple going in the midst of watching the video. Oh yeah, that's that guy that took grandma's seat. Who do you think he was? Perpetual humiliation that comes as a result of one presumptuous thing. 
Jesus says that's, well, that's the way it worked in the ancient world as well. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. That would be presumptuous. And so Jesus concludes by saying this in verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself, yeah, that's my seat, I'll just go ahead and take that, will be humbled. Conversely, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, I'm not really presumptuous like that. I, I would know. I would know. Would you? Would you really? Let's take a pride test, shall we? Answer these 10 questions. Don't do it out loud because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But let's look at these questions. Number one, do you long for a lot of attention? Like if there's an event and you're not at the center of it, you get mad, irritated, you want to leave, whatever. Number two, are you jealous or critical of others who succeed? Right? They got ahead of me. You got to make it all about you. Number three, do you always have to win? Some of you next week in the poverty simulation, I'm going to find out who the competitive people are. Even though it's not a competition, I will find out who the competitive people are. They'll be the people who walk out mad because <laughs> in the middle of the game of life, you ran out of money and somebody died and you're off the board. Right? Do you always have to win? Number four, do you lie or embellish to make yourself look better? Number five, do you struggle to admit when you are wrong? Or do you always presume that you're right? I've got all this figured out. Number, number six, do you have lots of conflict with people? I'm not talking about do you occasionally have an argument with somebody. Conflict's part of relationships. I just mean if every relationship you have is characterized by conflict. If you're like that guy whose cell phone rang on his way home from work once and his wife said, honey, please be careful. I just saw on the news that a guy's going the wrong way down the interstate and the husband responds, honey, there's not just one. There's hundreds of them and they're coming right at me. Okay. Are you that person? perpetually headlong into somebody else's business and face number seven do you cut in line let's keep moving number eight do you get upset when you don't feel people have properly recognized you i had a guy leave a church once and it was just yeah I, you just have people like it's just part of the deal okay so let me pull the veil back a little bit just just a little pastoral ministry 101 i'm not complaining or griping i love what i do can't believe that this is what i get to do for my life ministry but like you there are occasionally parts of the job which are the reason why i have to get paid right and so this is th this dude was one of those people i mean it was always an email always a phone call, and it was always nasty Right? I don't like the church. I don't like that decision. I don't like what you express in the pulpit. I don't like the leader. I don't trust the leadership. Yada, yada, bada, 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 bada. And it was just critique after critique. And finally, apparently, it all he took, could take. And so he left the church. And I went, whew. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. I'm just being real up here with you. And a month later, I get another nasty email. Do you know what it said? I just resent the fact that you all didn't recognize me the way you should have for all the things I did for you all. Are you that kind of person? Are you that way in your family? Are you that way at work? Number nine, are you entitled more than you are thankful? Living in the first world, there would be a big clue right there. Number 10, do you think you are basically a good person in the sense that there are other groups of people that you are better than? 
I'm just better. You might not put it that way because, you know, that sounds horrible or, or racist or whatever, what have you. It sounds very condescending, but I'm just better than them. Do you know who goes 10 for 10 every single time? Religious people. That's what they do. We have done, in the evangelical church, in America at least, we've done a phenomenal job calling sinners to repent of their sin, and we should continue to do that. But brothers and sisters, we have failed spectacularly at calling religious people to repent of a self-righteousness that will send them to the same hell. This is what he's calling us to do. Be humble. Be humble. And so here's the answer. Verse 10 of chapter 14. When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. Don't be presumptuous. And in fact, you might actually get something out of that. When your host comes, he may come to you and say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. You know, we read this verse as well in 1 Peter 5 that backdrops and reinforces everything Jesus is teaching here. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does all this mean? It means that Jesus loves you and Jesus is good, but Jesus also has a mission to execute in this world and he will not continue to allow religious people who are proud to cloud what he is doing in his name and to take advantage of other people in order to do it the way these Pharisees did with this man who'd suffered with edema and to do it for their own personal gain. The first requirement of a person of justice is humility, and that needs to be coupled with something else. It needs to be coupled with service. Jesus goes on in verse 12. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. That's a word we use a lot, isn't it? Blessed. We have no clue what it means, and I'll illustrate why in just a moment. But we're going to talk about what Jesus means when he says, what does it mean to live a blessed life? Because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you brought me here to set me up. And you used a disabled man as your pawn in order to trap me. But if you had the heart of the God you claim to worship, this is not how it would have gone down. In fact, two things would have been very different. Number one, he says, your aim would not have been personal gain. He says, don't, don't do anything so that somehow you get repaid or you benefit or your agenda gets accomplished. You don't do these things in order to get something. Because when you behave that way, you are indistinguishable for the world. You know, our own vocabulary gives that away, doesn't it? We often talk about, in very pragmatic terms, the way the world works, don't we? Don't we? We teach our kids that this is the way the world works. We're not even justifying it. Uh, we, where it's, whether it's the way a law is made on Capitol Hill and the way that sausage metaphor gets used, and man, it's just really disgusting, but that's the way the world works in almost every single sphere. Jesus says, but this is not the way my people work. This is not the way my kingdom gets extended. 
You invite people with money because they might give it to you. You invite people who have metaphorical doors that they might open to you. Now there's a time and a place. Jesus talks about shrewdness as well. I've done that over my ministry career where we bring a, a group of people in who are generous donors and we tell our story and, and we ask for their support. The reason for that is because we want to pass that along to those who are in need. We want to build a ministry. There's not anything inherently wrong with that unless that's what your entire ministry is about. Always coddling up to money. Always coddling up to power. The entire life and ministry of these men had been about this. And Jesus said, you know what, if you really shared my heart, this man that I just healed, which by the way is another phenomenal part of this story, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just call out the marginalization that's happening, and Jesus doesn't just set the man free from the oppression of the Pharisees. Do you notice how he heals him of his dropsy so the man is actually empowered to walk out of that oppression on his own? That's our Savior. And that's exactly the same kind of thing that Jesus calls us to do. He says, this man that I just healed, he wouldn't have been a pawn. If you really had the heart of the God that you claim to worship, this man would have been at the top of your invite list. He would have been first. And it would not have been so that you could use him. It would have been so that you could serve him. And so your aim would not have been personal gain. Secondly, though, Jesus says, if you really had the heart of the gods you claim to serve, your priority to others would have overridden your own priorities. He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Now, what's interesting, if you read further back in Luke, these same groups are mentioned just a few verses later. It's just in a different order. And it's a general description of the various kinds of people that in the ancient world would have been most likely to have been marginalized by society at large. In fact, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1946, you may or may not know there was an appendix to them that was also discovered called the rule of the congregation it was an extra biblical document and it describes how the israelites around the time of the dead sea scrolls uh, had aspired to build community and in that document these same four groups are called out and excluded both from the communal meal and also from the Levitical participation in the sacrificing, backed up, all of it, at least in the minds of those who were writing these regulations in this day, by Mosaic regulations in Leviticus chapter 21. And so when the Pharisees do this, they really feel justified in doing this. They, they were standing, in their minds at least, in a long tradition of marginalizing these people. And then Jesus comes along and says, boys, those days are over. Those days are gone. I have come to bring those days to an end. There is a new day here in which these people are no longer just not marginalized anymore. They are the first to be invited to the banquet. That's the value of the kingdom of God when it comes to justice. And when you and I embody that same thing, when we take the people that no one else wants and we make them first on our priority list, Jesus says we inherit something. Blessedness. He said, that, that's how you get blessed. That's how you get blessed. Now, we've got to be careful here. There's a couple of different words for blessed that, the New that, are, that are translated from the Greek in the New Testament. And if we're not careful, we'll conflate the two and we'll get confused. And we'll think that blessed is about a new job or a new car or some kind of prosperity gospel crap. That's not what Jesus is talking about. All right? And, and the way you do that is by distinguishing between these two Greek verbs or two Greek uh, adjectives. The first is the word eulogetos, 
eulogitas. We get our word eulogy from it. It just means to speak well of somebody. That's really all it means. I'm going to speak well of you. You're going to speak well of me. And that's kind of the purpose of a eulogy, isn't it? Don't you want one of these days when you die and there's somebody preaching your funeral? You want them to speak well of you at that funeral. You want everybody else to gather around that casket and speak well of you. You don't want anybody saying, man, what a horrible person. Even if you were a horrible person. <clears throat> you don't want anybody saying that, do you? There's all kinds of pressure these days for pastors even to eulogize and to do. And I've always said my running joke to anybody that, that calls me pastor is, please don't make me lie at your funeral. All right? Live the kind of life before God that I can speak well of you, I can eulogize you, and then not have to go home and repent for breaking a commandment. That, that's what we really want. But that's the word, eulogitas. You're speaking well of someone else. Well, this is what the Pharisees were after. <clears throat> this is what they wanted. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be praised. That's not the word Jesus uses here. When he says you will be blessed, he uses the word makarios. If eulogitas means others speak well of you, to have achieved makarios means that God is speaking well of you. And you know, at the end of the day, we're just working for an audience of one. Amen? I mean, that's what we're after. At the end of the day, what do we want to hear? Regardless of what our managers at work say about us or somebody out in society says about us, regardless of what anybody else in this world says about us, what do we want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Makario simply means one one possessing the favor of God. And that really is the question that Jesus is putting in front of these religious leaders. When you throw a big banquet, what is your goal? Is it eulogitas or is it makarios? Which one you want? If you're after that first one, well, yeah, you can get that. You could put on a show. Just keep doing the things you're doing. But that eventually is going to come to an end. If you want makarios... You're going to have to do this in a different way. I think about this, this metaphor of a banquet, and I, I think, what about the best meal anybody ever had? And it really depends on how you would define that, wouldn't it? How many of you could say, Pastor, if you asked me, I could tell you the best meal I ever had, right? The, and I would say, well, it depends on if you're talking about Yologatos meal or a Makarios meal, because that's different from me. Yologatos meal, that's easy, all right? Uh, most of the Pastoral Appreciation Month gifts I get are intangible. They're, they're just words of encouragement. Those things mean more to me than anything else. But probably the best tangible gift I ever got for Pastoral Appreciation Month was a gift certificate to Fogo de Chow. I heard a little bit of response in the room, but not nearly enough. You people are apparently deprived. Fogo de Chow is age-to-come food, people. It's awesome. I mean, the manna in the desert, the, the, I, I just, when I read about the marriage supper of the lamb, I'm like, yep, it's going to be a Brazilian steakhouse. That's what it's going to be. And forget about the chicken. When they bring the chicken out, you just tell them, take that back wherever it came from. You wait for the top sirloin and they bring it out basically on a sword and they put the tip of it in your plate and they just cut it right off of the cow, like right there. And it just falls and it's about medium well is where you want it. And here's the, here's the great thing about it. Fogo to chow. They just keep bringing it. I'm telling you, it's just like the marriage supper. Best Yologatos meal I ever had. If you ask my wife, she might give you a different answer. She might say that her best meal was at a place called Marada Bay Beach Cafe. 
It's on Isle Morada in the Florida Keys. We spent our 20th wedding anniversary there, and then we went back just a couple of months ago to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary in that same place. And so it is a beach cafe. I, I mean, the table, the chair, everything is right on the beach. You're looking at the Florida Bay. You want to go toward the evening, maybe 7.30, 8 o'clock during the summertime, because that's when the sun's going down over the Everglades. It's beautiful. The food is phenomenal. The seafood's great. I'm not much of a seafood eater, but I go for her. And, and, and I'll tell you, she, she's sitting there this last time we were down there, and they just put this enormously delicious-looking food in front of her, and we pray. And she takes her first bite. I'm not even making this up. She looks up right there in the Florida Bay, not 30 yards away. Two dolphins come up out of the water. And she said, well, it doesn't get more idyllic than that. You know, at least not in this world. That's Yologatas blessed. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. But if you ask me about a Makarios meal, I couldn't take you to either one of those places. In fact, I'd have to go all the way back to around the mid-1990s to an olive garden in Louisville, Kentucky. We'd been living in that city for about three weeks. We had left, both of us, gainful employment because we felt the Lord calling us to prepare ourselves for ministry. And so we moved to Louisville so I could go to seminary. And both of us spent three weeks looking for jobs. We had no health insurance. And we took exactly 30 days living expenses with us. After that, we're going to be broke. We'd only been married a couple years at that point. And three weeks in, we had beat the streets. I don't know how many applications I'd filled out. And she'd filled out even more. Not even the first phone call. I mean, I came off a of church staff. I thought maybe I can find a place that'll let me minister. I could not find a church that would let me lead in silent prayer at a dog's funeral. We found nothing. And we're both starting to freak out because we're running out of money. And one night my wife is just, she's in tears and what are we going to do? And so she came over and I embraced her. And then I put my, my hands on her shoulders and pushed her back a little bit, and I said, let's, let's go eat. We hadn't eaten out for three weeks. We're trying to save money. And she said, but we're almost broke. And I said, precisely. Might be our last meal. Let's go enjoy it. And so we went to Hurstbourne Lane's Olive Garden. We enjoyed the finest soup, salad, and breadsticks, and to drink, oh my gosh, it was the best vintage Louisville City tap water you've ever tasted. <laughs> now, compare those two experiences. Compare the Brazilian Steakhouse, Morada Bay Beach Cafe, to where we were 20 years ago. One of them is what my generation would have called a Kodak moment. Now I think we call it an Instagram moment, right? You're taking pictures, you're putting it on social media, people are speaking well of you, they're sending their warm congratulations. Nobody congratulates a young couple for moving away from gainful employment and not being able to find a job and being almost broke and sitting depressed in the corner of an olive garden. Thank goodness there weren't any cell phones back then, but we wouldn't have taken a picture anyway. We just wouldn't have done it. But you know what we experienced in that moment as we talked about what the Lord was teaching both of us in the midst of some of that admittedly hardship that, again, 20 years later, we look back at it. It's like just a blip on the radar screen. Like, that was nothing. But to a couple of 20-year-old kids that only been married a couple of years, it was a really big deal. And we had no idea 
what God was going to do. But in that moment, I can tell you, better than a Brazilian steakhouse, better than a beachside table looking at the Florida Bay, watching the sun go down, we experience the blessing of God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You want to experience that? It's not about you gaining it's not about you getting more money, you getting access to more power. It's certainly not about you leveraging all of this and using the disenfranchised as a pawn. It's about something bigger than that. You want to serve. It's the kind of person that says, who is the last person to be picked by the team? Who is that person that everybody else is ignoring? Who is it that finds themselves without any resources or any recourse? Where is the single mom? Where is the kid in the wheelchair? Let's go find those people. Let's cook a big meal. Let's put an invitation list together. Humility and service. Finally, compassion. Verse 15 is when it starts to get awkward, by the way. If you haven't tensed up already, you should probably get ready because it's coming when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is something else religious people do. Empty phrases that don't mean nothing. That's what this is. And the context makes these easy words to understand. Things have gotten really awkward because Jesus just walked in here and called everybody's bluff, healed the guy that they were using as a pawn, empowered him to walk out from under all that as oppression on his own he's told a story subsequently that makes everybody incredibly uncomfortable and so this guy tries to break that tension with well we can all agree that eating bread in the kingdom of god is a good thing you mentioned the kingdom it's a good thing to eat bread in the kingdom of god you know we live in a similar age don't we where um every time somebody dies pastors feel this enormous obligation and pressure by the community to just talk about heaven. Everybody tries to gather around and talk about how they're in a better place, eating the bread of the kingdom of God. They are with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the hard facts given to us in the word of God is that that's just not true for everybody. Some people are going to go to hell. Not everybody gets invited to the banquet. And what should scare us to death is when we look at verses 16 and following, and we begin to see who's invited and who's not. Jesus there tells a parable about a landowner who says, issue an invitation to everybody uh, who, who can come to my dinner. At the end of the day, all these privileged people have used their privilege to make excuses for why they can't be there and why they can't serve and why they can't put the interests of the kingdom first. And so the landowner says, cancel their reservations and go out and find the lame. Go out and find the blind. Go out and find all of these other people. And then all of it culminates... In verse 24, for I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Who doesn't go to the banquet? Well, in this story, it's the men with the lame excuses. Read some of them when you get home today in verses 16 to 23. I bought a field. I can't be there. I, it's dinner. Neither bankers nor lawyers work past 5 o'clock. You can't get to a dinner? You can't do that? No, I bought a field. I just bought some livestock. <clears throat> this one's funny. I like this one. I have a wife. I, I can't. Oh, yeah, of course, because wives, I, I'm married to one, right? And so I, I get it. Wives hate getting dressed up and going out to a nice dinner. 
They hate it, don't they, guys? They'd much rather sit and watch you watch a ball game and drink beer. I have a wife? What's that supposed to mean? What's your lame excuse for not leading out, for not following Jesus? Why do you resist his call to justice? Why do you refuse to sit at the same table with those who he says are first on his invitation list? Well, Pastor, you know, I'm working a lot. I gotta, well, you know, I'm in college right now. It, it's not a good season for me. I don't even know what that means. That's Christianese for I don't want to do it. That's what that is. I got these hobbies. I need some me time. All right, you baby boomer. Me, you and your me time. I need to finish binge watching that thing on Netflix. I got all this stuff I got to do. But you know what? It's okay. It's totally okay. Because I raised my hand. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized as an infant. I cried at camp. I mean, I had this huge experience, so I'll be there too. You need to understand the weight of what Jesus says to the man who speaks in verse 15. There, there, yes, it's going to be wonderful to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's going to be so great for all of us to be there. And Jesus in response through this parable says, um, you're not going. You're not on the invite list. Because following me, it's not a one-time decision. It is a lifetime pursuit. I created you. I died for you. I own you. Everything you have belongs to me. Everything. And you can't come because of this. You can't come because of that. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason that the, the favorite metaphor of the New Testament writers for describing the church is the bride of Christ. It's because that metaphor goes a long way. You don't just have a ceremony and then when you get back from your honeymoon, never speak to each other. You don't do that. Because marriage, like salvation, may begin at a moment in time, but if it is real, it continues for the rest of your life. And some of you may not have com the compassion that you should have on the vulnerable and disenfranchised because you do not have redemption. This is the warning of Jesus. Do not be so busy doing the dishes and working on that next degree and improving your GPA and working your way up the ladder and trying to get pregnant that you forget God and His agenda. Don't leave that stuff out. And so Scripture now connects the dots for us. The prophets and Jesus. There is a holistic, consistent message at the top of the invitation list are the disenfranchised. It's the ones nobody wants. And at the top of the list of those who are actually going to be able to participate in that banquet and throw it for those people are people of humility. I recognize my faith. My faith is not like about my best life now. Put that crap out of your minds. My faith is about the glory of God. And I'll get far more self-fulfillment out of that if I'll stop looking in the mirror every morning and trying to figure out how I'm supposed to improve myself. Humility, a good, good dose of biblical humility will remind all of us that my faith isn't about me. It's about the God who created me and redeemed me. People, secondly, of service. What I do for the joy of belonging to Him, not because of what I might get out of it, but because of what He's already given to me. People of compassion, I share the heart of God. 
And so my heart goes to the same people that God's heart goes to. Some of you really need to rethink not necessarily your policy. We're going to disagree about the, the right way to address certain kinds of issues as a nation. But, but some of you really, really, really need to re-examine whether your attitude toward race, your attitude toward the immigrant, your attitude toward any number of people who are disenfranchised, who are marginalized, is not an antichrist idea. Because Jesus says, they're at the top of my invitation list. I'm not asking you what you think ought to happen with this or that. I'm saying, where are you at in your heart with reference, right? That goes back to the pride test. I'm better. We're better. You wouldn't say it that way, but that's what you're saying, basically. We're better than them. If they'd done that, if they'd been as smart as me, they wouldn't be in that situation. The poor wouldn't have been in that situation. That single mom wouldn't have been in that situation. It goes back to some of the foundational principles that we've been talking about uh, when we in our American individualism say, you know what, I've had some good breaks, but basically I worked for all of this and I've worked hard and I have a right to it. And, and what God does in both of our testaments is he turns that on his head and he goes, yeah, you, you did do, you made some pretty good decisions with that brain I gave you. You've worked pretty hard with that health I allowed you to have. You, yeah, you've made some good decisions. You've worked pretty hard, but basically I gave you everything that's yours. Maybe that's how you should look at it. And we see now, it's not just the prophets who think that way. It is our Lord Jesus who stands in that same tradition. And he says, these are the people that are first on the invitation list. Did you know we have people right now who are part of the covenant family? Who love Jesus and love this church and they are not here with us. And you know why? It's because they can't drive. Who's going to pick them up? Because Jesus says those are the people that are to be first on his invitation list. I wonder why that is. You know, there's a retirement home right here in Shepherdstown. You know how many thousands of people will be in church today between this body and the 60-plus congregations throughout Jefferson County? There's not a single substantive presence of the people of God in that retirement home. Those are the people that Jesus says they're at the top of my list while the rest of us are putting on a really good show. What are we doing? Where are the people of God? You want to know who these people are, by the way? Pastor Bob is going to be at the back after the service. Just go ask him. He can tell you. Several folks that have, that have said, hey, I, I, I need a ride. I need a... We're not talking about a lifetime commitment to anything. We're just talking about stopping on your way and picking somebody up and bringing them to the gathered congregation where they want to be. That's what we're looking at. There's hospitals. There's women's shelters. Drug and alcohol rehab centers. Methadone clinics. Filled with people who, according to the word of the Lord, should be first on the invitation list. That's all I'm asking. Where are the followers of Jesus? Are we ready to throw a banquet for those people? Let's pray. Lord, your words are straightforward but we do thank you for their clarity and we thank you for the way that your heart beats so loudly and so clearly. Lord, may ours be in sync with yours. Father, may we be people who have humbled ourselves to recognize the grace that we have been given that we do not deserve. May we be people of service. May we be people of compassion. 
with a heart that beats exactly like yours. And Father, may we glorify you in all these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.